Totally. Yeah. And maybe before we start, I did actually want to address what had happened today in America's capital. Um, I guess for, for people who don't know, um, Congress met formally today to approve <clears throat> President-elect uh, Joe Biden's win in the general election, which happened in November. And um, so we're sending kind of <laughs> we're sending hopes of peace and safety to all the civilian people of um, USA today um, to the members of the Senate, the House of Representatives. And um, this is why we they actually were assaulted um, in acts of a violent attempted coup um, on the Capitol today by mobs of angry Republican Trump supporters. And this is white supremacy at full throttle, okay? Um, if you haven't been tuning in, please do. And I'm just gonna say this, never before <laughs> have we seen such, such an attack on Senate, inside Capitol Hill, on democracy, on freedom. And we're seeing and allowing right now an outgoing American president to um, continue to fuel his ridiculous and false rhetoric, um, trying to undo an election result and fuel the whole idea that the election was stolen from him. And let's be just super clear here, everyone, that throughout his whole life, and especially his presidential term, Trump has been openly and violently racist, sexist, misogynist, oppressive, toxic, shady, homophobic. in the nicest of terms, homophobic, um, clearly abusing his power, his title. And um, we don't stand for it here at just north of the border at Reawaken. So we wish safety for the DC residents tonight, as well as in the coming days. And um, yeah, let's, um, Let's unite, let's stand for for all those things that Trump is not. <laughs> Amy, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely echo your sentiments in terms of um, not obviously being in support of anything that looks like white supremacy. And um, especially I think as white folks um, and white folks in America, they, I think are positioned uniquely right now to get active um, and to organize and to take up some of what folks of color have been doing for years and years and years. Like this is a white person problem. Um, and so the white folks who uh, claim to be anti-racist and who are anti-racist, like now is, is a really great opportunity for action and to actually do something about what we're seeing um yeah thanks for that yeah that's a really good point um it is now time you know to really step up and and do that work and just want to welcome carrie i see that you've uh you're signing in here from newfoundland amazing as of january 1st um you've had uh, about six days at sobriety so that's great Amazing. Welcome, Carrie. And uh, for everyone who is tuning in um, from, I guess, from the replay um, or hasn't had a chance to sign in yet, um, please, uh, when you do, just uh, read the comments and, and also join in and say hello. So I guess we'll begin. Um, we are on episode 17 of Inspiring Insights. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Erin, if you didn't already know. And I'm in the business of amplification. And I keep asking myself the question, what makes me feel alive? And the answer is always coming back the same, that I love connecting with folks who align themselves with their own healing ability. And I love connecting with their practitioners, their wellness providers, their coaches, um, who are also doing you know, that that incredible work to really guide women and non-binary folks to a better version of owning their life, owning their health and aligning to their own healing ability. 
So Inspiring Insights is actually a show brought to you by Reawaken Co. It's an online education platform focused on connecting you to the right natural wellness practitioner so that you don't get lost in the current patriarchal, disempowering, broken wellness system that is currently in place. This is the place where we showcase amazing practitioners in our network to inspire a more conscious world, helping you run just as authentically as you do efficiently. And like I said, I see some people tuning in saying hello. Hello from Boston. Amazing. Hello from Toronto. Drop a little wave. Uh, we love engagement here. If you have any questions or comments throughout the show, um, please do write them in the comment box. And I can even mark them as a question and uh, we'll answer. We'll have a lot uh, more time later to answer some more questions. But for now, I want to introduce our guest, Amy C. Willis. Welcome, Amy. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So allow me to read your little bio here and um, introduce you properly, and then we'll get going. So Amy's a sobriety and mindset coach. She supports women in reclaiming their power and freedom through sobriety. Amy comes to this work after struggling with alcohol addiction for 15 years, more than 15 years, and losing her dad to his alcohol addiction. So Amy's a dual certified coach, is also a certified meditation teacher, a certified EFT, which is emotional freedom techniques, or a tapping practitioner, um, and they're all modalities that you bring into your work with your own clients. So the foundation of your practice, Amy, is radical honesty, uh, mindset transformation, habit change, and resilience building. And I really, really admire that in your work that you do. And I know that before, uh, I guess prior to your coaching business, you actually worked in HIV prevention research um, at some different academic institutions, uh, earned a master's degree in interdisciplinary studies from York University. And of course, in addition to coaching, consulting, speaking, and writing, Amy loves to travel, read, build community, move her body, and to meditate. And when Amy's not working, she's hanging out with friends, spending time outdoors, or cross-stitching. <laughs> and I know you work with clients globally as well, right? And in, in both a one-on-one -on -one and group coaching setting. Uh -huh. Amazing. So you call Toronto home and um, I'm happy to know you and uh, happy to have you here. Yes. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here and to chat with the awesome folks who joined us today. Yeah. I'm so, so happy that we have lots of people here already. All right. So I guess to start, maybe Amy, just tell us a little bit more about how you became a sobriety coach. Like what, what actually led you here onto this path? Mm hmm. Well, you sort of touched on a couple of like key sort of pivotal moments in my experience. So I've been coaching like I've worked as a sobriety coach for about a year and a half now. Um, and the work is deeply personal and deeply meaningful for me because of my own experiences. Um, like you said, I, you know, struggled in my own alcohol addiction for more than 15 years. And I also lost my dad to his alcohol addiction. And both of those were really profound experiences that shifted and sort of got me to where I am now. Um, my dad's death certainly was a catalyst to change in my life. Not immediately. My addiction got a lot worse after he died. But um yeah, it really, it really shifted the trajectory of my life. And I got a lot of clarity in terms of where I didn't want my life to go after seeing, you know, how his ended. Um, and so I got sober about four and a half years ago. And two years ago, I decided to get trained to become a coach because I've always felt really, really passionate about supporting people and creating change in their lives and, and really um, supporting people in creating the lives that they want to be living, lives that they are madly in love with, um, where they do feel powerful and free in the lives that they're living. Um, and so, you know, I really felt called to tap into my own struggles and my own experiences with addiction to support other women in those journeys, because I know that journey so well. And I also know the other side of it now so well. And I 
see what's possible in sobriety and if I can support other women in getting there and sort of remove some of the, I mean, I fumbled through my sobriety and now I get to show other women so they don't have to fumble as much. Um, and so that's, you know, a snapshot of how I got to be where I am. And I love my work so much and it's such an honor and privilege to be able to do it. Wow. Thank you for that. And it says, it speaks a lot about you when you come from, you know, the deep depths of, um, addiction and, and you've seen a lot of, um, things that not a lot of folks maybe have and dealt with a lot of things that mm-hmm. um, a lot of us maybe still haven't, you know? Um, and I, I'm sober as well. And I totally hear you on that. So, you know, you've been sober for how long now? Um, I'm like between four years and four months and four years and five months. Who's I'm like four that? and a half years. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and in your business, Amy, you, um, really help folks with, you know, sustainable long-term sobriety solutions. So I wanted to ask you maybe what does the beginning of that look like, especially for folks here today that might be wondering that as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I should just say like, not everybody is looking for that right off the bat. And a lot of folks might be here cause they're like, I'm sober curious, or I'm interested in just thinking differently about this. So I'm going to offer what I'm offering, understanding that not everybody's here for the same thing. Um, And I don't want it to feel like pressury for anybody. Um, But I think, you know, the very first step when it comes to creating, whether it's like long term sobriety or really any kind of change in your life is making a decision. Um, so that could be a decision because you're like, well, you know, my life isn't exactly where I want it to be. And I feel like it could be a little bit better, or it could be that you're so sick of your fucking bullshit that you can't live another day doing what you're doing. And so you're like, I need to make a change here. Um, and so it really is about a real decision. So nothing wishy-washy, not I'll do it until it's not comfortable or until it becomes inconvenient, but a real decision that you want change in your life. And then from there, um, I would say really starting to build a life that supports what you actually want in your life. Um, So it can sound, that can sound also very daunting. Um, it's not about, you know, overhauling your whole life in the next 24 hours. It's really about getting clear on what you want, um, getting clear on what you don't want, what your priorities are, where you want to be, what you want things to look like, and then start making little changes. It really is about the little daily habits that you create, that you repeat day in and day out that support massive change over time. Um, And I think it's also about getting clear on like values and beliefs and ensuring that you're living in alignment. Um, Otherwise, you will probably experience a lot of inner conflict, um, which will be detrimental to your progress. So that's sort of what I have to say in terms of like, what what the starting point looks like really with any change, and then how you build your life around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's the one decision or maybe a couple. But well, just yeah. That- yeah. It's like you making a choice about your life. And then also, I think the second part to that is like, don't question the decision. Right. It's not like up for negotiation every single day. That's exhausting. So when I say make a real decision, I mean a real decision. Mm. Nice. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned Amy as well you know, folks that are living in alignment. I know that um, the wellness space in general, you know, people throw around that word quite often. And Mm -hmm. um, I I want to like flesh that out a little bit more and unpack it because, you know, what is alignment? Is it the same as like what I call authenticity, like really stepping into yourself, um, owning your decisions, owning your power, owning your ethics, your morals, you know, what is alignment for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I would say like a life in alignment is about having your inside experiences match and be reflected by your outside experiences. So again, really like drilling down and being super clear on 
what your priorities are, what your beliefs are, your values, your goals, like, you know, ethics, whatever, you know, all those parts of you, um, what's most important to you, and then having an external world that actually reflects those things in terms of your relationships, your jobs, your life choices, boundaries, um, how you show up energetically, how you communicate with people, the politics you practice, all of that. Um, so using drinking as an example, perhaps you're clear in your head that drinking maybe doesn't work for you, it's not in service to where you wanna be going, um, it doesn't actually do anything for you, but you're still drinking, right? You're still choosing to drink. And so for that, uh, that example, that's like, that's not in alignment, right? You're in conflict with yourself, you're behaving in a way that doesn't match, you know, what's happening for you internally. And so a huge part of the work that I do with my clients is bringing that alignment to life. Um, and really, you know, alignment to me feels like coming home to myself um, so that we can show up as our truest, most authentic selves in all scenarios, regardless of what's happening around us. Um, yeah, I think that's what I have to say about alignment. Mm. I'm curious for the audience as well, listening in, what is, what is alignment for you and, and what does that look like in your day to day? Um, as you spoke, Amy, it, it made me think of, I've been doing a lot of, you know, inner core work as well. And I came across, um, a lovely woman. Her name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. She is a yoga teacher, um, but big on, on talking about, you know, how, a lot of introspective practices miss the external. Uh, so it's like, you know, you just kind of practice on the mat and don't practice in your day to day. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, you know, it's the same in, in sobriety as well, that you need to really align those two together so that you don't, um, so that it's just easier to make decisions and show up, like you yeah. said. Yeah. Totally. And like, not just sobriety, any alignment across the board, right? It's like, if I have a boundary, if I'm super clear on like, what's okay for me and what's not okay, but I don't communicate that, right? Like that's out of alignment. Or if I do communicate it, and then I promptly walk through it, or support other people in walking through it, like that also feels like out of alignment. So I think there are a lot of ways that that internal and external, like, mirroring um can take place in order for alignment to sort of be all-encompassing across like all buckets of your life mm, sounds a lot like boundaries which i think a lot of us could use a little help with <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah um amy i did want to touch on because you mentioned it earlier and i know that you mentioned a lot of it over your social media and on your blog which is amazing by the way everyone go check it out um, I'll, I'll write Amy's website just in a second in the comment section, but, um, Amy, you talk a lot about being sober curious. And so I wanted maybe to know what you thought of being sober curious as you were becoming sober or maybe even before, cause that's kind of, you know, where the audience may be at right now, really just becoming a little, um, more open to it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. So the sober curious movement is relatively new, um, as in it didn't exist when I was getting sober, like mm -hmm. the term sober curious was not even a thing. Um, so and I would say I was not like, mm, I want to really get open and like curious about my relationship. I fell into the latter bucket. Um, <laughs> of what I said before, which was like, I was so sick of my own bullshit that I needed to create change. There was no like gentle easing into it in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but for folks who are maybe, you know, hearing what sober curiosity is or hearing about the movement, um, I actually love this movement. I think it's such a helpful starting point for so many because as the name suggests, it's about curiosity. And I genuinely think that within curiosity, judgment and shame do not exist. And I think when it comes to any kind of substance use, um, there already can be so much shame and judgment and we don't need that. That's not helpful in creating change. And so I think 
for people who are like, maybe I'm starting to think about my relationship with drinking differently, this can be a more gentle entry point. Um, so there's a really great book, Sober Curious, by an author called Ruby Warrington. Um, so for anyone who's like, hmm, I might wanna like poke around in this, um, that's a really great starting point. She also has a really awesome podcast um, of the same name. Um, so both of those would be really great, you know, starting points. Um, and I would say like, if you're somebody who is starting to look at your relationship to drinking a little bit differently, or even just tuning in to what it looks like, because I think so many of us just get in the habit of doing that we aren't really in the being and the showing up and thinking about what's actually happening for us. Um, I invite you to ponder the question of why, why do I drink? That's it. Just why do I drink? Um, and I think a really important part of this exercise is to be radically honest with yourself when you're answering this question. So if you're not there, if you're not willing to go to that radically honest place and maybe get a little uncomfortable, that's okay. And pocket that question for maybe a later time when you're willing to explore it a little more openly. But I think just, you know, asking the question like, why do I drink? Why do I do this? What do I get out of it? What am I hoping to get out of it? What kind of experience am I wanting to have that I feel I can't get without booze? Um, just, you know, poke around and see what you find. And that's it, right? That, that would be a really great starting point in your sober curious journey. Nobody is saying you have to give up booze altogether for the rest of your life five minutes ago, but just get curious about this thing that's in your life and like, does it actually serve you? Mm, yeah, that's really great. I was just thinking the other day that, I mean, since the pandemic and everything and, and places <laughs> to gather and to dance have closed, mm -hmm. originally for me growing up, that looked like bars at 3 a.m. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's what I asked myself when I was going through my own, you know, transition out of um, drinking was that, what is this doing for me? And what do I like about it? And it, a lot of it came back as, I love dancing. I love flailing my arms in the air and just, you know, waving my hair like I just don't care and just doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even that was really mind blowing for me. I was like, oh, okay. Do I need to drink for that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Right. Yeah, what's true, right? Because I think that we, and like this goes back to the beliefs thing, and also this like really touches in into like normative alcohol culture, which we'll probably get into because I love it. But um, it's just like all, we, we hold all these beliefs about alcohol and all these beliefs about ourselves, right? So maybe your belief was like, I love dancing and the way I enjoy dancing most is by drinking. And so if I take drinking out of that equation, then I assume that I'm going to be fucking up that fun experience for myself. So that's not going to be attractive. But I think we actually need to test that. Like, does, does that belief actually hold water? Because um, yes. in a lot of cases, it doesn't. Um, but we don't know until we get a little bit curious about it and actually try that out. Mm -hmm. And it sounds a little bit as well. I know the Sober Curious movement is pretty new. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds a lot like adding in that self-compassion piece, which a lot of us could really use, you know, these days, just yeah. just wondering and being curious instead of always turning to that judgment, to that shame, to that guilt mm -hmm. when we do drink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. And like, so many of us look to alcohol as a coping tool and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, we live in a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal world that is deeply oppressive for a lot of people a lot of the time. And when you couple that with not having a lot of healthy coping strategies and alcohol being everywhere, and generally really accessible and constantly receiving messaging that alcohol will solve all of our problems and give us everything that we wanted and more, 
and not talking at all about how it's poisonous and highly addictive and neurotoxic. Um, it's it's just like a tinderbox of you know create creating um such a possibility for dependence and and addiction and i think we're all just like doing the best we can with what we have and we you know i think once we learn that there are other ways to deal with our lives um alcohol doesn't become as important and necessary as it once was mm -hmm. yes not as important as it once was mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's how it goes with change right um, for folks, uh, I know one person already has seen this, but I just started a poll that I uh, wanted to, just curious about um, your answers uh, for folks here. But the question is, have you ever tried sobriety for a period of time? And so if you want to answer that, just go head on over to the polls section just below the chat and uh, answer yes or no, but I'm ready, maybe. <laughs> maybe I should have asked, added another option there. Or open, right? Or like willing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, whatever it is, it's it's fine, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to see if folks here have um, tried sobriety or you know have been sober curious a little bit. So far we have 100% yes, I have tried sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if that changes as uh, as we keep talking, Amy. Okay. So um, thank you for that. I wanted to bring light to sober curiosity because it's like a new way of, um, you know, becoming um, sober. And so, you know, one of the first ways that we normally think of becoming sober, a lot of us do is, you know, I got to go to AA. I have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is like the way um, this is the one tried, true, and tested um, organization that has been around for so long that has helped so many people. So if, you know, if I try this and I'm uh, good at it or they accept me or whatever um, and the steps work for me, then I'm a success. What do you think about that? <laughs> I'm curious. Where to begin? Um, well, I mean, I think like, before I say anything about AA, I do want to acknowledge it for being an accessible, global, peer-based model um, that's like super consistent across the board. Like it's like the Starbucks of recovery. Like you go to a meeting in Toronto, they're doing the same thing. You go to a meeting in Chicago, they're doing the same thing. Italy, Mexico, whatever. It's consistent and like, Consistency is can be really helpful for people in recovery. Um, and it's free, right? Um, which is amazing. And the only real requirement is that you have a desire not to drink. So I think in terms of like barriers, um, they're relatively low, which I think is, is great. Um, and it's an option. And I would like gently push back about what you said around like the tried, tested and true, because like, there have actually been a lot of studies about how ineffective AA is. Um, so, Thank you. <laughs> um, so, but again, I think like it's an option. And I think if it works for you and the model speaks to you feeling empowered in your capacity to change, and if you feel like it gives you the community and the tools and the support that you want and need, I think that that's amazing period, right? Um, and I think it's also important to recognize that for a lot of people, it doesn't work. It just does not work. And I'm one of those people. Um, and I think a lot of that goes to, and you said it, like it's an old organization. It's approaching 86 years in operation. So it was created in 1935. It was created by two white, middle to upper class, cisgendered, hetero dudes. And it's barely been updated since. And as you can imagine, the program is infused with their experiences and their beliefs and their values. And so if you're somebody who identifies outside of any of those things that I just listed, chances are parts of your identity are not being addressed or potentially erased altogether. And I think that that's really troublesome um, when we're thinking about healing 
and we're thinking about sobriety and recovery, um, I think a holistic approach is really, really important. And, you know, like I said before, like living in a patriarchal capitalist, white supremacist world, like, why would we think those things wouldn't impact our addiction or our choice to use substances? So of course, the responses to how we heal from those addictions or our you know, substance use needs to encompass all those parts of our identities. And someone who arrives at their addiction because they were a queer kid who was kicked out at 16 and rejected by their family and living on the street and doing sex work to survive, those things matter. Those things matter. And so it's really, you know, I think it's really important to have alternatives to AA and options that actually speak to the whole person and the intersections that they encompass and the diversity of their experiences. And what I have found is AA just like misses the mark on that. For sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, as someone who has also tried AA um, and just did not, as you said, align with what was happening and, um, didn't feel, I just didn't feel, um, seen there in, in a lot of ways, which is hilarious because, you know, they are quite accepting and it was that environment, but just not in the same, like my experiences weren't seen, mm -hmm. right. They were seeing me like, my name is Aaron, but like, yeah, they were also seeing me as an alcoholic and labeling me as an alcoholic, um, you know, at every meeting. And, and I didn't like that. And I, think also you you probably have some some thoughts on you know the whole brain based model of disease and you know calling someone al an alcoholic throughout their whole recovery period can probably take a huge um can make a huge impact on someone who's actually trying to move out of that language mm -hmm. um do you have any thoughts on that you know i do <laughs> um yeah, so alcoholic is actually not even a term that I use um, in my practice, in my life. I think I've used it one time publicly to describe my father, which, whatever, I'm not gonna go there with that, but it's not a term I use and for lots of reasons. So that's very much connected to the brain disease model of addiction, which tells us that if you are struggling with addiction, you are an alcoholic. So it's very rigid in a binary. So it's either like you are or you are not. You can drink normally or you cannot. Um, and, you know, it's treated as a disease that can never be cured. And it becomes this all-consuming identity. And so many other parts of our identity are washed away as a result of it. Uh, which I think is, I think, you know, for me, yeah, sobriety is important, but also I'm a whole bunch of other things, not just my sobriety and not just my addiction. Um, and so I think that can be really damaging for people. And as you say, to constantly have to say, hi, I'm Amy and I'm an alcoholic, like that feels not true for me. I haven't had a drink in four and a half years almost four and a half years. So to be like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I think I am is one of the most powerful starter sentences on the planet. And you need to be very careful what you put behind that. And so to put it in the, in the present terms, in affirmative language, I, I think language is powerful. And I think that if we're hoping to actually create change in our lives, letting go of some of that and instead focus on healing and like who you are not now, as opposed to who you were four and a half years ago. I'm a very different person through this journey. Um, and I just, I think it has the potential to just, you know, be damaging in a lot of different ways. And one of the other things I really hate about the word alcoholic is, you know, instead of, and again, this is, I think one of the things that really bolsters normative alcohol culture, is it makes the problem be the person. So instead of saying alcohol is 
um, poisonous, neurotoxic, and wildly addictive, and all those things are true, instead of talking about those things, we position it as, oh, you can't handle your alcohol. You have a problem with alcohol. The problem is you, as opposed to putting it back on alcohol, which actually is the problem. Um, and we don't do that with other drugs or, or other addictive substances, right? Like we don't say you're like a smokeaholic or you're a heroinaholic. Um, and I think, I think that that's um, a really important distinction that we need to be making. Like, yes, we are responsible for our choices, but nobody chooses to become addicted because they think it's a really awesome time because it's not. Um, nobody ends up in the depths of their addiction because they thought it was great and they wanted to be there. And I think it just is, yeah, it's problematic and we don't do it with anything else, which I think is really curious. Hmm. That is very curious. Isn't it? I, can we go back to AA for just a second because it's mm -hmm. called Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so, uh, I, I just, you know, as we were discussing that, I wanted to maybe find some other resources for folks out there that, you know, may not align with um, the values and of AA. Um, mm -hmm. Is there like other alternatives that maybe, you know, don't subscribe necessarily or push or oppress <laughs> folks. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different folks around today that maybe weren't, maybe were there, but like, you know, didn't have as much voice uh, in mm -hmm. 1935 as they do now. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, what other helpful alternatives are there mm -hmm. out there? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm a sobriety coach, so someone like me, and there's also lots of other people, right, who do what mm -hmm. I do. Um, but what's great about a coaching relationship is that it's really in-depth, it's highly individualized, and it really meets you where you're at and takes into account, if you're working with a good coach, takes into account all of the facets and intersections of your life and your lived experiences. Um, and like what I really try to do in my work is apply like a feminist, intersectional, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, trauma-informed lens to how I show up for my clients. And it's really about providing support and accountability to help your clients get to where they want to go quicker. Um, there are also lots of like online and group formats. So Recovery Refuge, Smart Recovery, She Recovers, Tempest Sobriety School, support groups like We Are the Luckiest. And then, you know, again, and this, to the extent that it does now, this stuff did not exist as much when I was just getting sober, which is like part of the reason that I became a coach, because I was like, I, I became the solution that I needed, essentially. Um, but online, like one of the places I looked, I was like, who out in this world is sober or doing this work or thinking about these things critically? So I found a lot of really awesome folks um, on Instagram. So some of the accounts that I follow that I really love and are more diverse and aren't just like white ladies, um, Recovery for the Revolution, Sober Black Girls Club, Served Up Sober, Sober Brown Girls, and then everybody else that I mentioned, they all have Instagram accounts as well. So there are lots of different options and lots of different avenues, um, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I think it's really about getting clear on your needs and your goals um, all because you know those things are going to be unique to us and our journeys um, and so thank goodness there are so many different options and I just say like anyone who's listening and they're maybe not quite sure just try some things out and just like explore and figure out what works best for you like we all have our own unique patchworks um, and I think sobriety like addiction is a house with many doors there's lots of entry points to it um, and if you haven't found it yet, that's okay. Like, keep keep trying. Like, the goal really is just figuring out what works best for you. And, like, that's it. So keep trying. Oh, 
just drop the mic. I have, done yet. I have, I know, no, <laughs> I, like, yes, I, for everyone who's watching that replay, if I were you, I would just go back like three minutes and just watch that all again. Cause that was some really good info. Um, and for everyone, by the way, that signed up, um, you will be getting, um, an email tomorrow and within 24 hours of this replay. And uh, we're, we're approaching question periods. So I hope you are all burning uh, with desires and questions and comments. <laughs> um, and as always, you know, if you actually just want to type in your question, go for it and we'll get to, we'll get to it. Um, but before then, I do actually want to ask a, a pretty imperative question and it's important that folks know why um, we account for intersectionality in the process of sobriety, in the process of wellness in general, mm -hmm. in the process of recovery, of healing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, on that. Why account intersectionality into that process? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I've already like touched on this a little bit, but like all of our differences and all of our lived experiences and like the more layers of our identity and often subsequently of oppression that are added into the mix. So like being a woman, being queer, being, you know, BIPOC, living with a disability, experiencing financial barriers, all of that impacts how we engage with drugs and how you know our relationship to substance use and potentially addictions develop right so like as an example that's like close to both of us um rates of addiction in our community the lgbtq plus community in canada are two to four times higher than what we see in our straight counterparts right um, and this is due to stigma discrimination rejection from friends and family internalized homophobia lack of support systems and connection concurrent mental health issues and so like if we're not thinking about those things if we're not thinking about um how someone's queerness factors into their addiction if we're not even tuned into the fact that like our community is a lot more susceptible to addiction. So like, why aren't we providing more supports um, or how race factors into it or how ability factors into it? Like say you're someone in a wheelchair and you're going to go to an AA meeting and you arrive at the meeting and there's no ramp. <laughs> like these are just like the logistics of our lives and they matter and they factor into it. So too does our privilege and how our privilege intersects and impacts our access to resources, our access to treatment, our access to healing. And again, and I just think it, it bears repeating, like we live in a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal world that negatively impacts us in so many ways. And so why would we ever think that how we engage with substances or with addictions wouldn't be impacted by these systems as well? Right. And so substance use doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so understanding the ways that these systems interact with our like parts of our identity is crucial for healing and for wellness. Yes. And considering everything that Amy had just said, it's so, so easy to get alcohol and it's financially accessible you know, for lack of a better word, but also like for the most part, financially accessible for folks, you know, you can walk in and you can buy like $10 of whatever you want at the liquor store, um, mm -hmm. which is, by the way, I'm sure you also, <laughs> we could talk about this um, in probably, because I, my next question, and I'm hoping that will be my last, will be um, like a normative alcohol culture in general. But, you know, what do people, how, how have we just like been living in a world where the government actually runs the liquor corporations in each province? <laughs> they actually sponsor, you know, and like actually just own that. They make money off of it. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really easy 
to get, you know, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's grotesque to me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the current situation, right? Like this is a really great example. Like in Ontario, the LCBO didn't close one single day during COVID, right? Um, and we know that alcohol sales skyrocketed and have been continuing to skyrocket since COVID. Um, and alcohol was deemed an essential service. And it's just like, in what world do we equate putting poison into our bodies, at, you know, on par or at the same value level as like hospital workers, right? Um, and so, yeah, like that's where largely where the capitalist piece comes in because it's like the alcohol sales d makes tons and tons of money for the government. And frankly, and this might be a little bit out there for folks, but like here we are, um, like alcohol is a tool of the patriarchy um, and it's a tool of the oppressor and consumption of alcohol keeps us down and keeps us foggy and out of it and it's a lot harder to see clearly what's going on and maybe create a change when you're out of it and you're disconnected from self and you're disconnected and also we choose to disconnect because of the oppressive systems that we're in so it's this like terrible fucking cycle and i get it and there's like no blame or no shame in any of that but I just I think that there's a lot more going on and I think that it's worth again getting a little bit curious about and just asking some questions. Totally, totally. And I'm I'm seeing actually a comment and I, I want to read this out loud because this is beautiful. Thank you, Amanda. Being a black queer cis woman, I find it also hard because I don't really see other sober black folks around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really real and I'm hoping amanda that you can go on to some of those instagram accounts that amy had mentioned and also you know find folks um in your community that are sober and i hope that that comes to light somehow <laughs> that more people literally become you know reawakened and step out of the fog and step out of that um mind control really um, Amanda, definitely check out um, Sober Black Girls Club and Served Up Sober and a really awesome um, black queer woman named Sherry Hampton. She's actually the one who created Served Up Sober. Um, I think those are really great starting points and recovery for the revolution. Um, Carolyn is not black, but she is brown and queer and doing some really cool shit. And I totally hear you. Thank you for that. Thank you for offering those resources too. Invaluable resources. Okay, so um, I'm aware of the time and it's been 50 minutes. So we've talked a little bit about normative alcohol culture. I'm sure we can get into it more. Maybe just give us a definition of what your um, thoughts are on, on, on normative alcohol culture and then yeah. we can um, open for questions. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, normative alcohol culture, it's basically broadly an accumulation of all the beliefs and attitudes and expectancies and norms and behaviors surrounding and within consumption of alcohol um, based on like cultural factors. And so it dictates not only what's normal and safe and healthy, but also encompasses the ways that we think about and interact with and speak about alcohol in our lives and in our communities and in our cultures. Um, it's a combination of messages and messaging um, that come to us, frankly, from all directions. So the TV shows you watch, the movies you love, the books that you read, the billboards you see, like when you type cheers on your phone and the champagne flutes pop up, or the beer glasses automatically populate, those are small examples of normative alcohol culture. Um, yeah, hopefully that's clear. Um, and really at this point, like it almost operates as this invisible system. It's just so normal, it's so insidious and so ingrained that most of us don't even realize we're in it until we get out of it. 
Um, and you know, so much so that alcohol has become the only drug that requires an explanation of why we aren't using it rather than why we are. So think for example of like your Sunday morning brunch. I mean, I don't know who's going to brunch these days, but it's totally normal and totally acceptable to have mimosas during your brunch at like 11 in the morning or whatever it is. And if you weren't having one, you'd probably have to explain why not. And then just imagine for one hot second, you take those mimosas out of there and you replace it with heroin. So imagine you all just have a little bit of heroin with your brunch. How does that sit with you? And I'll just like leave it at that. If anybody has any questions about normative alcohol culture, I'm happy to answer them. I just wanna make sure there's enough time for um, questions as well. And I'm not advocating that anybody do any heroin, just to be super clear. Got it. Got it. Um, before we get into questions, I just have one um, small question for you, Amy, and that is what keeps you inspired? Um, I would say like my clients, definitely. Um, I love how they show up to the work that we're doing so open and so just so deeply committed to changing their lives in the face of challenges. And it's just so it's so beautiful to witness and it's so um, awesome to be trusted to support them in that journey. And then I would also say, you know, some of the folks who have maybe had a grittier time at it. So like sober women, sober queers, uh, sober folks of color, gender expansive sober folks. Like, I just think it's, it's so amazing um, to see the work that we can do when we come together and the community that we can build. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a few questions already. Um, yeah. And Kaylee, thank you for expanding on your previous statement. So I'll read, I'll read them both. Um, Kaylee said, I think the impact of uncontrolled detox is an important factor as well. And I asked her to explain more. And so she said, you know, if uh, liquor stores closed during the pandemic, it would mm -hmm. also have major health impacts on people i.e., you know, people would uh, no longer have access to alcohol, and that could include uh, people who are trying to detox, um, probably cause seizures for folks, maybe more domestic abuse, perhaps. Um, do you have thoughts on that, Amy? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, so, yes, and, and, you know, that has come up in a lot of different arguments for why um, the government chose to keep the liquor stores open. And... Typically, um, the number of folks who are so severely dependent on alcohol that they would require a medical detox or would be at risk for something like a seizure that could be fatal, typically that group of people is small. So um, most of us, even those who drink heavily, are not necessarily at risk of um, dying from detoxing on our own. So I do want to acknowledge that like for a lot of people, that is a very real concern. Absolutely. Um, for most people, it's not. Um, and I'm not even necessarily advocating for the, for the closure of the LCBO at all. Um, but what I think would be interesting is a bit more regulation around it. I mean, we were all in a time where like we could only purchase so many rolls of toilet paper. So like, can we not apply something similar that puts parameters or boundaries around how much people are able to consume or how much they're able to buy at any given time or on any given day? I'm not necessarily advocating for it being cut off altogether, but for you know, basically unfettered access and additional things like being able to now have alcohol delivered to your home from like every food delivery service, um, we've gone so far in the opposite direction. We've made it so easy for people to drink um, that, frankly, I think we're creating a lot more problems with what we've created in this current situation than if we were to put parameters around it and close things down a bit. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what you're saying about domestic abuse, um, but what I'm familiar with is the other side of it, which is how involved alcohol is in a lot of domestic abuse situations where people are stuck at home together and drinking. And thank you for that question. 
Yeah, thank you, Kaylee. And thank you, Amy, for that answer. Um, keep, keep them coming, keep them coming. I have one actually from someone who couldn't make it here tonight. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just read it out. Um, I have a question for you, Amy. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone who is interested in sobriety but is hesitant to fully commit? I don't feel like I have a problem with alcohol and I believe I'm able to limit my intake to just celebratory occasions. But at the same time, I just don't care to be drunk and hungover anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a weird place of feeling stuck in a place you don't love but also don't hate. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's a really great question. And I think that also speaks to a lot of people, right? Um, and that kind of goes back and touches on what we were talking about earlier, which is that really restrictive binary of like, you're either an alcoholic or you're not. And it's like in real life, um, one, addiction exists on a very broad spectrum from very mild to very severe. Um, and also, Two, and I think this is really around like disrupting normative alcohol culture and the way we think about and talk about it. Why do we have to have a problem in order to remove it, right? So like, if you're not loving it, you don't have to keep drinking. Um, if, you, if you don't actually think it does anything of benefit for you, ditch it. Like things don't have to get worse before we get before it gets better before we choose to make it better and i think that's like part of the rhetoric around like aa and um you know the brain disease model of addiction and and the term alcoholic is the notion of hitting rock bottom right which is like i have to get to some kind of extreme situation i have to crash my car or lose my job or blackout so many times that I end up in the hospital before I make a change. And I think we just need to like ditch that model and ask questions like, how does it make me feel? When I think of the shiniest, best version of my life and who I want to be, does alcohol support me in getting there or does it deter me from getting there? I think just asking different questions and just getting curious about it and exploring it, kind of like what we were talking about in the sober curiosity piece. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And yeah, I would say the same um, to the person who asked me, asked that question. Um, it was very similar for me. I went to my uh, doctor at the time and said, I wanna quit drinking. Drinking is a, is a problem for me and at the time she like did the questionnaire and she was like, okay, you actually don't meet the criteria for um, having an addiction to alcohol. So you're good. You're good. You're good. Don't worry about it. And, you and that was good. <laughs> actually the moment when I was like, whoa, this is actually like a huge problem in our industry, in our healthcare industry. Um, that's, that's saying to people that that's okay. You know, moderation is, okay i'm okay with moderation but it was a problem for me and i was not heard in that moment mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so yeah there's i guess on the opposite side of that there's another question here that says would you say to someone who's managed short periods of sobriety then convince themselves that they can drink like a normal person quote unquote again mm -hmm. moderation is a huge issue for me uh, the side effects and anxiety always seem to hit me worse than my friends, but after yeah. a while, I tend to forget the bad parts. Try it again. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone who's, you know, that kind of way, like, I want to drink like a normal person? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, Carrie, thank you for that. Um, I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And I think it's like going back to that, like, dynamic of, Either I can drink like a normal person or I have a problem. And there are a whole bunch of different things that exist in, in that. And also I would say like, let's just ditch the normal person thing altogether. Cause I don't know that it's like terribly helpful. Um, I'm more interested in how it impacts you. Like the anxiety, the hangovers, the side effects. Like if you're somebody who maybe already leans more um, to being anxiety prone, whether it's like social anxiety or generalized or whatever, pouring alcohol on that is like pouring gasoline on a fire. It's, it's going to exacerbate the condition for you, as you know. And so I'm just curious. And I think like it might be worth 
getting a bit curious with yourself too, what brings you back to it? Um, again, like, what are you hoping to get from it? What are you trying to create in terms of your experience or your situation that you feel you can't have on your own? Um, yeah, and, and also I think like taking a look at your beliefs um, around yourself, around alcohol, because if you believe, for example, that alcohol makes you fun or alcohol makes you social or you can only have a good time with alcohol and then you think about removing that, well, that is terribly unappealing, I would imagine. And so I think it's looking at those beliefs and then actually like taking them to task and seeing if they're actually true. Um, and I think just, you know, more broadly, like getting curious about why you want to keep going back to something that doesn't make you feel good. Yeah. And thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie, for that. And Amanda, yeah, I, I, I feel that way as well. I struggled with that. And thank you, Amy, for like asking those questions that we don't always think about. Right. And in the moment questions too, like those moments when you're out with your friends already, or you're sitting in your car and you know, you're, you're off to downtown, whatever that means, or wherever you're going to someone's house, um, being able to ask yourself those questions and being resilient in that moment is extremely difficult. And it's a practice, mm -hmm. which we all get better with practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should also just say the piece around moderation. Um, for most people, because like we're dealing with um, an addictive substance that um, over time we build tolerance and dependence to, um, which naturally makes us want to drink more of it in order to achieve the same thing. So for most people, moderation does not work. We keep telling ourselves that it does, but it's never going to work and it's never going to change. So I think like getting clear on that as well, going into this, being like, I can actually play this tape forward and see where I end up a month down the road if I keep going down this path. Like moderation is never going to work for me for you unless you're literally having like one glass of wine a year. Got it. Thank you, Carrie, for that. Uh, again, so Kaylee has a question as well. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not so much a question, but I'm going to make it into a question because <laughs> it's a good point. Mm -hmm. A question I've asked myself many times has been the difference between being sober and being alcohol free. Um, maybe there's more to that, Kaylee, uh, but I did want to frame it in terms of a question. Amy, do you think um, there's a difference between being sober and being alcohol free? Um, I mean, sober can generally include substances beyond alcohol as well, right? Um, and like sobriety could be like, well, I really struggled with um, cocaine or meth and I'm sober from those things, but I do still drink. So I think sober is more of a broad term when it comes to substances and, and drugs. And when I say drugs, I include alcohol in that because it is a drug. Um, and alcohol-free is alcohol-free. And maybe what you're getting at is, um, I don't know, like maybe the nuance between not drinking versus like, I'm not drinking, oh, straight edge. I would say yes. And also I think like we get to define what our sobriety looks like for ourselves. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answered it for you, but I would say yes, straight edge. That also includes veganism, am I right? That's what it was when I was in high school. Anyway. I have actually no idea about that. I always thought straight edge was just that you don't drink. Or no, that you actually don't do drugs as well. I can't remember. Anyway. As you said, it's, it is what we define it as. Oh, yeah. If we, Okay, got it. Um, yeah, so I would say I think a big piece in this is like your intention in um, – how you're using cannabis. So I feel like if you're like, I smoke every day because I'm trying to get away from my life or I'm smoking because I want to check out. Um, or you're like, I use this cannabis 
balm to rub on my quads after a run because it makes them feel better. Like I feel like those are both using cannabis, but like the intention and the ways that you're using it are very different. So I think um, like anything else, just getting curious about that relationship, what brings you to use it? What are you hoping to get out of it? Is it like a medicinal therapeutic thing? Is it because you're bored with your life and you don't want to like exist in it in the way that you are as a sober person? Um, and only you will know those answers. But I think, you know, like anything else, it's worth getting a little bit curious about. Yeah, I think that's a big one because everywhere I look, there's cannabis stores popping up. Um, mm -hmm. And that's obviously a huge indication that a lot more people are um, using cannabis. And Kaylee, that's interesting. Okay, uh, so she's saying that she's heard it referred to as California sober. That's as, a new term to me. As in you are sober from cannabis, I think. I guess that's No, sober. as in you use weed, but you're, because oh. like everybody uses weed in California, allegedly. Allegedly. But also like we've legalized it now. So, and yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, interesting conversations and great questions from everyone. Is there any final questions? I, I honestly, I've loved this discussion so much and I feel like it's past everyone's bedtime and I appreciate you still being here and being with us and being totally engaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie. Um, yeah, totally. I think that you get to decide what you know, what works for you and the intention and the use and like all of that factor into it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you folks so much for being here. Um, Amy, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? I mm -hmm. uh, actually, before you do, I wanna just mention to folks before they go that um, I put there in the offers section and also in the comments box, the link to Amy's five step uh, free guide to kickstart your sobriety. It's a full workbook. Um, go ahead and check that out. It's amazing. Um, and as Amy mentioned, she is a coach. Um, I'm sure she has more to say about where you can get a hold of her and how you can contact her. Yeah, so you can just click that link um, and that will get you to the workbook. And Erin also put my website up earlier. Um, so that's, you know, you can get me through there. Um, and also just as a thank you for being here and being part of this community, I'm offering 10% off of all my one-on-one -on -one coaching packages with the code INSPIRING10. Um, so if you, you know, are thinking about this and you want some support and accountability and tools and to really kind of have someone guide you through that journey so you don't have to fumble for yourself the way I did, um, I would, you know, love to consider working together. I do offer complimentary transformation calls where we have the opportunity to get to know each other a little bit better and figure out if it makes sense for us to work together and if it's a good fit. Um, so there's information on that about that on my site as well. So, and yeah, and I would just say like, if you ever have any questions about sobriety or you're feeling stuck or alone, please know that you are not, you can reach out to me at any point. You can find me on Instagram at, at Ms. Amy C. Willis. Um, I'm on there all the time. So reach out and say hi, and I'm always happy to chat and I'm here. And thank you for being here. Folks, thank you again so much for showing up uh, for yourself. And Amy, thank you for coming on here and sharing your beautiful self today with us. Um, this has been Inspiring Insights, episode 17. We're here every Wednesday live. And uh, until then, until next time, stay inspired. Thanks, everyone. Have a lovely evening. Thanks, everyone.